Having a versatile, high-quality piece of clothing feels great, but having a whole closet full of favorites feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. Such, you know, amazing scientific evidence that consuming animal-based foods leads to shorter lifespans and chronic conditions and all this environmental degradation and, of course, you know, um, animal suffering and needless animal suffering and needless human suffering. You know, I struggled to make sense of it. And then I realized, you know, why are we doing this to ourselves and to the planet? And that's when I came to the realization that, you know, this is something that we're taught to do. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 249. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hey, veggie lovers. Welcome to another episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. It is such a pleasure to have you back here today for another great episode with Stuart Waldner, who is the author of Escape the Matrix. Such a great topic, such a great episode. And I want all of you on YouTube, look at my beautiful background. I finally took the time. I don't think it's quite all the way set the way I want it, but I got my new camera set up. I have my LED book backlit bookcase. So I hope that all of you YouTube watchers are loving my background. Thank you for watching and listening to Veggie Doctor Radio. So today we have Stuart Waldner, who is an activist and an author who invites readers to take the red pill as they escape the matrix. The title of his debut nonfiction book, written after he transitioned to a plant-based diet in 2008. As his health improved, he felt better, and the more he learned about the statistical connections between our dietary choices and the worldwide climate crises we face, the more he felt an urgency to tell other people for our health and for the planet. Waldner spent nearly two decades exploring Earth's greatest wonders and connecting with sacred sites around the globe. When he's not advocating for the health of people on the planet, he spends time playing with his dogs, cooking plant-based foods, running, and restoring his 128-year-old Victorian home. For more on Stuart Waldner, visit stuartwaldner.com. So this episode is really great. We talk about his journey into veganism, which started in the 1980s in Kentucky, believe it or not. So I told him he gets bonus points for being plant-based in 1980s and in Kentucky. So he talks about his journey. And of course, there's ups and downs just to like anybody's journey. We talk about what is the matrix, so he defines that. We talk about speciesism. We talk about how food can be very political. We talk about marketing of animal products and some of the complexities around that. And we also talk about consent and children. Should children give consent for their dietary choices or the dietary choices that we're exposing them to? Something to think about. And then, of course, we get into how we can escape the matrix and what is the best thing that vegans can do to help others wake up to the reality that's around them. This is a really good episode. I really hope that if you're interested in this topic, 
that you pick up his book. It's really well written. It's very well referenced and it covers lots of different topics around animals, eating animals, the system that we're in and all of that. Veggie lovers, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for coming back week after week to hear every episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. And for my new listeners, welcome. I am so pleased to have you here. I really appreciate you. And I'm very grateful for each and every one of you. Keep listening and keep sharing. We appreciate it so much. And now let's welcome Stuart Waldner. Stuart Waldner, welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. Thank you, Dr. Yami. It's wonderful to be here. I'm excited about our conversation today. Yeah, well, I am so looking forward to this because you have written a very interesting book that I feel a lot of people should read. And I really want to get into it, all of the different terms, different things that you mean by your book. But before we get into your book and what you discuss there, I want to know about your journey. How did you become a vegan? How did that evolve over time? Well, I grew up, you know, like most people in the United States, eating the standard American diet. Uh, my parents, um, with all the love in their hearts, you know, fed me animal-based foods uh, throughout my childhood, thinking that, you know, that was going to offer me the best uh, option to grow up being healthy and strong. And so that was something that I think most people in the United States um you know, their family was like that, just like mine. So I grew up eating animal-based foods, thinking it was natural, necessary, and nutritious. And then at the age of 23, um, I discovered that science was saying that the saturated fats found in animal-based foods uh, would lead to heart disease, among other things. And so I decided I didn't want to become a statistic, and I decided to make a lifestyle change at that point and became plant-based, and this was back in 1985. But I want to say that, you know, I grew up in Kentucky, and, you know, Kentucky has wonderful people who I, I really love, but we're one of the unhealthiest states in our country. I mean, we have... Um, we rank 48th in healthy behaviors and 47th in health outcomes. And there's only one other state that has more people with multiple chronic health conditions than Kentucky. So that's the area that I grew up in. And I was surrounded in, throughout my childhood with people with chronic conditions like uh, asthma, uh, emphysema, uh, diabetes, obesity, heart disease. And that was just normal. You know, I thought that the best we could do was to be hopeful we could avoid that through pills, shots and surgeries, you know, and then um, I just thought it was going to be inevitable that we would all come down with these chronic conditions. And fortunately, at the age of 23, I gave up eating uh, animal based foods and became plant based. And I did that for two years and was great. I mean, I had a, my friends and my family, we were all doing it together. It was a, a, a wonderful journey we were on. We were getting healthier. We were cooking our own food and it just it really felt great. And then I started doing more traveling. And in 1987, let me tell you, it was impossible to eat plant-based in the United States while on the road. Uh, you can only live on iceberg lettuce salads for so long, you know. So I reluctantly became vegetarian at that point just to get, you know, nutrition that I needed while traveling. And then fortunately, in 2008, I discovered that it was much easier to uh, be plant-based while traveling. And so I went back to becoming fully plant-based, you know, back in 2008. So I gave up eating uh, all animal-based foods um, back in 1985, but I was vegetarian for 20 of those years. So uh, that's kind of my journey. And, you know, I was happy to, uh, Dr. Yami, I was happy to just do my thing, you know, and let other people do theirs. But as things changed and evolved, I realized that the earth's at a critical time right now and that, um, you know, we're facing climate change and emerging infectious diseases and biodiversity loss, mass extinction rates, uh, our declining health to the horrible return on investment of animal agriculture. And, you know, all of these things um, are connected to the food on our plates and choices that we're making in the grocery aisle. And I think that's something that 
you know, I wanted to help people understand that because I think once people know the science, they can make more informed decisions and it will help lead to better choices starting with the food on their plate. So that's kind of my journey and that's kind of why I decided to write my book. What an amazing story. And I, I feel like sometimes we should give people like extra bonus points, depending on the amount of difficulty that they had to endure to become vegan or plant-based. 1980s, I can't even imagine because, I, you know, I'm a child of the 80s, you know, I was born <laughs> in 79. So I, I can't even imagine going back to that time being plant-based, you go into the grocery store now and there's over 20 commercially available different plant milks. Back then right. there was not. I, I hear from people that they had to buy like powdered soy milk. Yeah. I, I, I can't even imagine what it was like. So that, and then the other thing is <laughs> from Kentucky. I grew up in Texas, but yeah. I also did my training in Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> so I definitely understand the cultural differences that might make it a little bit tougher to eat a certain way. But what right. I found interesting going back to your journey is you said that whenever you first transitioned to not eating meat and animal products, you did it with family and friends. How did that yeah. happen? Was it something that you told them what you had learned or how did that kind of happen all together that y'all did that? It was, it was our spiritual mentor actually who, who advised us. And it was part of a holistic approach to uh, our lifestyle. We adopted uh, stretching and exercising and meditating and a plant-based lifestyle. So it was very holistic. And um, yeah, it was something that uh, we chose to do for spiritual reasons. And it was it was a great experience. And like I said, I would have continued it had I been able to maintain it in a healthy way while traveling. But like you said, uh, you know, it was a vegan wasteland back in the 80s. I mean, there was one uh, brand of soy milk available at a health food store, not let alone a typical grocery store. You couldn't find anything vegan, you know, in, in terms of a non-dairy milk at a conventional grocery store in the 80s. You had to seek out, you know, health food uh, grocery stores, and they were small. But I think there was only one brand of soy milk. It was by a company called Eden Soy, and it wasn't really that great. <laughs> but, you know, we got used to it. And there was, there was of course, um, you know, like one brand of tofu. So, it is so much easier today and it, it it the transition can be made so much easier with such less effort today than even just five years ago there's so many more products available now it's never been easier or tastier to become plant-based i agree a hundred percent i actually live in a smaller town and yeah. i have so much choice i think sometimes i might have a little too much choice we have the option now of going to the grocery store on dates just to <laughs> check out all the new products. You know, that's like a wow. fun Friday night event for me and my husband. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, look at this new vegan chocolate, these new vegan cheese puffs. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's, it's like, very exciting. It's like way <laughs> too many products. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's exciting just to see the explosion of plant-based foods that are coming to groceries today. So it's it's never been easier to, to make the transition. You know, in my book, I advocate for a whole foods, plant-based lifestyle. And so many of the vegan foods that are coming to groceries now are uh, somewhat processed. So they are healthier than the um, animal-based foods uh, that are out there, but certainly not as healthy, I don't think, as eating, you know, whole fruits, whole vegetables, grains, legumes, nuts and seeds. So, you know, there's a lot of different reasons for becoming plant-based, and I try to talk about all of them in my book. So, but in order to reap the benefits, the health benefits of it, we need to eat uh, a whole foods, plant-based lifestyle because, you know, let's face it, corn chips and Oreo cookies are vegan, you know, so you can you can eat a lot of vegan junk food and you, you won't reap the benefits uh, for your health. Yeah, that's a good point. Absolutely. I talk about that a lot on my podcast, but let's get into the topic of your book. So first of all, what is the Metrix? Well, I was doing a lot of research into nutrition and health, the environment, uh, climate change, animal welfare. And uh, as I was reading all of this, I discovered that, you know, it was all interconnected to the food on our plates that I mentioned this earlier. And I struggled to make sense of it all when there's such, you know, 
amazing scientific evidence that consuming animal-based foods leads to shorter lifespans and chronic conditions and all this environmental degradation and, of course, you know, um, animal suffering and needless animal suffering and needless human suffering. You know, I struggled to make sense of it. And then I realized, you know, why are we doing this to ourselves and to the planet? And that's when I came to the realization that, you know, this is something that we're taught to do. My parents taught me to eat animal-based foods with all the love in their hearts. They thought I needed that to be, you know, grow up healthy and strong. And so, you know, they taught me to do that because that's what they were taught by their parents. And of course, our society uh, reinforces that, you know, every chance it can get that we need these products, you know, we, that we're taught that we need animal protein uh, for protein and we need, uh, you know, dairy for calcium to have strong bones. But, you know, these are nutrients and uh, the Matrix does not have a monopoly on these nutrients. They can be found in a wide variety of, of plant-based foods. So that's when I realized, you know, that we're living in a world that I call the matrix. So I'm using the world in the matrix movies as a metaphor for the world that we're living in. So in the matrix movies, artificial intelligence has taken over the planet and is using humans as an energy source. You know, artificial intelligence was farming humans in the matrix movies. And when I first saw that scene where Neo frees himself from the pod and, and there's those thousands and thousands and thousands of other pods with humans in them, you know, when I saw that, I thought factory farming, you know, and so I realized that, you know, we're doing the same thing on this planet. Humans have taken over this planet. There's now over 8 billion people on the planet, and we're using farmed animals as our energy source. And so that's why I say we're living inside the matrix. And we've been taught that eating animal-based foods is natural, necessary, and nutritious. But the science that I share in my book says it's none of those things. Yeah. <laughs> I just got such hard chills. I remember watching The Matrix for the first time in college and that movie blew me away. I had to watch it twice the same day at the movie theater. And, you know, it just even, I, and I know in the book you talk about how you're not sure whether the makers of the film intended there to be an analogy to factory farming and maybe this is a step towards veganism. But if you look through the movie and you watch it carefully, there's a lot of references to eating less meat. And you think about what they eat, like when they're in the free world. But then you also think about that one character that didn't want to leave the matrix and right. he was being fed this huge steak at this <laughs> restaurant and he didn't want, he loved the flavor of that. He didn't want to go to, he's like, why would I go to the real world where everything's going to taste like slop and, you know, I'm not mm. going to have this delicious steak. So, so yeah, yeah, being trapped inside this world that we think is the reality, but we don't know the reality. So what really is the reality in the matrix? What's happening in our world, and especially here in the United States, that a lot of people don't realize is happening, or at least turn their head the other way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that an example is, you know, how our government uh, supports the meat and dairy industry. So I think it would come as no surprise to most Americans that there's uh Money plays a big influence in our politics, and I think most people would realize that, you know, the fossil fuel industry um, contributes greatly to political campaigns and, and lobbies Congress hard for uh, basically to prevent them from passing bills that would regulate their industry. But I th what I think most people would be very surprised to discover is that the animal agriculture in the United States contributes a lot as well. So between the year 2000 and 2019, uh, agriculture in the United States uh, spent $2.5 billion lobbying Congress. And comparative, compared to each uh, company's uh, revenue, um, uh, Tyson Chicken spent 33% more um, on political campaigns than ExxonMobil. So that really surprised me, you know. And why would the meat and dairy industries be doing this is because just like with the fossil fuel industry, they want to elect officials that are favorable to their industries, and then they lobby them hard to prevent them from passing regulations that would curtail their uh, activities. Another statistic that I discovered while researching my book, and it blew my mind, was that between the year 2000 and 2019, um, the beef industry spent 
$200 million lobbying Congress against enacting uh, climate uh, legislation. And so I think that was really surprising, too. Why would the meat industry be so concerned about Congress passing environmental laws uh, aimed to curb climate change? It's because the meat industry has a huge climate change problem, and it doesn't want um, people to know about it. They they want, you know, the things that I discuss in my book, the meat and dairy industries don't want people to know. They try to keep it hidden from us. And, you know, my book this uncovers a lot of inconvenient facts and unpleasant truths. But at the end of the day, my book is about hope. It's about how, you know, we do have a choice. And, you know, we've been basically lied to. We've been indoctrinated into a society that you know, that teaches us to consume these products and at the detriment of our own health and the health of the planet. But I always look back and say, you know, who's profiting from this? Who's who's gaining from this? And of course, it's the meat and dairy industries that are, are that are gaining from our consumption of the products. And so they're going to continue to advertise their products to us and they're going to continue to lobby Congress and they're going to continue to invest money into political campaigns to get uh, officials elected who are favorable to their industry and, and don't want to bring about changes. But Yeah, and it keeps the public confused, too, you know, mm -hmm. because there's so many powerful people trying to protect their industry and, you know, Perhaps they truly believe what they're doing. I, I think that there probably are people that in their industry, they're very passionate about it and they believe sure. what they're doing. And you can find things that support you, right? But it mm -hmm. keeps the public very confused and not sure what to do. And I think for me, for the type of personality I have, I did have this underlying belief, both as you know a lay person growing up, you know, and even then as a physician, that we needed to eat animals in order to be optimally healthy. And I think for a lot of people, that is that first hurdle that mm -hmm. once you overcome that and you realize, oh, actually, not only do I not need animal products to be healthy, but I can thrive without right. eating animals, then it frees up your brain and your mind mm -hmm. to be more open to some of these other things that you've either been believing or just not paying attention to or having that cognitive dissonance about. So, right. you know, everybody comes in at different angles. Some people it's more for the environment and climate change. Some people it's more for the animal ethics and some people for the health reasons. But I think that once you overcome one of those hurdles, it opens you up to understand the other ones and, and you know, see what's really been happening all of these years. And now for a very important message. Hey mama, if you are feeling frustrated about mealtime battles, worried that your child isn't eating enough or eating enough vegetables, afraid that your child is going to get some awful deficiency or disease because of the lack of diversity in their diet, I wrote a book that might be for you. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Did you know that most children are born with the innate ability to eat the appropriate amount of food to satisfy their hunger and support appropriate growth? Despite this, parents are still anxious and confused about how much and what to feed their children. In addition, many children are labeled as picky eaters or develop behaviors such as hiding and sneaking food. There's also a growing epidemic of dieting behaviors and eating disorders beginning at alarmingly young ages. In my book, you'll learn the five pillars of healthy eating, how to apply intuitive eating through all the stages of development, lifestyle habits that support healthy eating and body image, troubleshooting and problem solving for picky eaters, overeating and dieting behaviors, how to create and foster a healthy body image in your children, how exploring your own body image and relationship with food will help raise an intuitive eater, and what foods to offer your child at different stages of development. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Are you ready for a fresh approach to feeding your child? For more information, visit dryami.com forward slash book. And now back to the episode. 
I agree. I think that, you know, we have been taught this and the, the idea that we need animal-based foods has been such a part of our culture. And it, it seems very risky to most people to think about giving that up. They, we are taught that if we do give it up, you know, we're, we're risking our health. And that's simply not true. Like you said, uh, actually, the science that I share in my book says that we were going to restore our health uh, by eliminating animal-based foods. So I think the, the big hurdle for most people is that we think it's necessary. And that's why on the cover of my book, I have a hand that's extending the red pill. And that to symbolize to people that we do have a choice. It's not necessary. You know, we, we can choose to divest ourselves from uh, animal-based foods and we will reap the benefits of that. But there's a, because there's a choice, you know, we can choose the blue pill, which is, you know, maintaining the status quo, you know, continuing to do what we've always done in our lives. And we can just look at the world today and we can see the impacts of climate change and uh, environmental degradation and biodiversity loss and, you know, our declining health. And that's the blue pill. And we're going to just get more of the same unless we we make a, a change. And the, and the great thing is it's a it's a win for us, for our health. It's a win for the planet and it's a win for the animals. So we have nothing to lose uh, and everything to gain by making this this choice. And it's never been easier to do than it is today. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about speciesism. I don't know if I've ever talked about that on this podcast before, but can you say what it is and how does it affect our food choices? Well, speciesism is basically a artificial hierarchy that, you know, we put on all living beings, basically. We categorize different beings and we assign value to their lives based on, you know, where we put them in this hierarchy. And it's completely arbitrary because, you know, if you look at different cultures around the planet, you can see that, you know, they have a different hierarchy than maybe a country next door, you know. So, for instance, you know, in, in Asia, it's uh, quite common for people to eat dog. Well, in the United States, we would never consider, you know, consuming a dog, you know, for us, a dog is a pet, but uh, in other countries, it's not. So, you know, these lines uh, that we create, this hierarchy is arbitrary and it's determined by our society. So what I say in my book is that if we are uncomfortable with the idea of eating our dog or a cat, then we should be uncomfortable eating really any animal because that line between lovable pet and farmed animal is just arbitrary. And, um, you know, because of that line, we're able to ignore the suffering of farmed animals where we would never be able to ignore the suffering of cats and dogs, or very few of us would be able to. You know, if most people see a dog injured by, uh, you know, maybe hit by a car, they try to help the dog, they try to rescue it. Uh, and few people can turn away a, a, a hungry kitten meowing at their back door, you know, most people will will you know, try to help that cat. And so, you know, we we know that cats and dogs um, are unique sentient beings. They have personalities, and we know that because we interact with them and we invite them into our homes and we have them as pets and we love them and they love us in return. Uh, the problem is, you know, we don't extend that same courtesy to farmed animals and very few of us have any kind of relationship with a farmed animal. Um, but those that do, uh, like at animal sanctuaries where, you know, pigs and, and cows are rescued from the meat industry, people who work at these um, sanctuaries develop strong relationships with these animals. And, and these animals are just as loving and caring as the dogs and cats that we we have in our homes. And, you know, one of the uh, things that I share in my book are studies about the complex lives of farmed animals. You know, science is now showing that even under the tremendous stress of factory farming, that animals still have friends and family and um, they care about their lives and, and want to continue living. Um, and like an, a, an example of um, speciesism is, you know, pigs. You know, we think of pigs as just food, food commodities. But science has shown that, you know, pigs uh, can do anything that a dog can do. It can learn any trick that a dog can do, like fetch a Frisbee. 
and uh, you know anything that a dog could do, a, a pig can learn to do. And this kind of blows my mind because you know dogs have been selectively bred by humans for like 11, 10,000 years to become, quote, our best friend, right? But pigs have only been selectively bred to become huge and be treated as a food commodity. And so I wonder, you know, how much more um, friendly or how much better of a companion could a pig be if we had selectively bred it to be, you know, a companion to live with humans instead of just being treated as a food commodity. So these are the things that I kind of bring up in my book and I show the studies of how, um, you know, when we think of these uh, animals as just herds and flocks and food commodities, you know, we strip them of their individual personalities and that allows us to do harm to them that we would never be able to do to them, you know, if we knew that we were harming an individual. And so there is a disconnect there. And uh, I talk about in my book, you know, there was a study, I think it was in, in the Journal of Environmental Psychology where they interviewed um, American children ages four to eight and they found some really interesting things. And I think as a pediatrician, you, Dr. Yami, might uh, find this interesting. You may already know about it, but um, what they found was 84% of children said it was wrong to eat a cow. And they said 79% of the children said it was wrong to eat a pig. Yet they were eating animal-based foods that their parents were giving them. And so the study said that, you know, children are unsuspecting meat eaters and they're eating animal-based foods without realizing it. And that's what I was saying earlier, how we were born into the matrix and we're taught to do this. Um, and, you know, parents don't talk to the children about where the food on their plates comes from. And that's because parents are uncomfortable with the idea of, of what they have to do to animals to get the food on their plates to begin with. So this is a topic that children aren't taught. They don't know where the food comes from. And so they are being trained to eat animal-based foods uh, without their consent. And so it's through deceiving the children and um, through a lot of times just outright lying to the to children about where the food comes from that we become meat eaters and so this study was saying you know we we have an opportunity to disrupt that and it would be so much better for the environment and could help reduce the impacts of climate change if children knew where the food on their plates is coming from so they can make uh educated choices too because, you know, most children of that age, they view all animals as being pet-like, you know. And I think this is something that we're all born with, is this empathy for all life. And uh, unfortunately, as we grow up, you know, we uh, lose that ability to empathize with all living creatures. And it's, and again, it's a study that I share in my book uh, that says, you know, at the uh, early adolescence is about the time when we have the mental capacity to do the mental acrobatics and gymnastics to create speciesism, where we put animals into these categories, uh, where we say to ourselves, it's okay to eat certain animals, but not others. And so this is something that we can disrupt. And I'm really glad that there are physicians like you that are advocating for children to adopt, you know, a healthier uh, dietary pattern, because I think it really uh, needs to start at an early age. It's much easier to do it when we're younger than it is when we're older, I think. Yeah, that is such an interesting concept that you've brought up. Should children be consenting to eat animal products? Because a lot of times you hear the opposite, right? You're hearing from the public, oh, it's unethical to raise your child vegan. They're not giving right. them a choice. <laughs> you know, it's just so interesting <laughs> that people think that, that you're like, you know, uh, your child should be able to eat all the chicken nuggets they want, you know? But mm -hmm. you're right. I hear so many stories and multiple guests on my show that they chose to stop eating animal products when they were very young, when they made the connection and of course, much to their parents' chagrin, right? Because then parents yeah. are just like really stressed out and worried about it mm -hmm. when their child suddenly is like, I don't want to eat animals anymore. But it happens a lot when the children finally make that connection because it hasn't been explicitly explained to them what they are eating. Right. So that's a very interesting concept. Should our children be consenting to eat animal products. I think that's something that we could definitely think about and talk about. 
Well, let's uh, shift gears and talk about marketing. We are all much more susceptible to marketing than we think we are and that we would <laughs> yeah. like to be. But why are animal products so heavily marketed? Talk a little bit about that. Well, like you said, you know, we know marketing works. So the meat and dairy industries um, spend a lot of money advertising their products to us because it gets us to buy more and more of the products. So, for example, um, Americans are eating 58 pounds more meat per year today than we did in 1960. And we're eating 30 pounds more cheese today per year per person uh, than we did in 1970. So throughout my lifetime, we've just seen a, a huge increase in the consumption of animal-based foods. And that's because of the marketing these uh, these products are, are done uh, to us over the course of a lifetime. So some of the most well-known uh, marketing campaigns uh, are from the meat and dairy industry. So back in the 1980s, uh, the Beef Council came up with beef. It's what's for dinner. And that was over 30 years ago. And today, uh, I think it's in my book. I hope I give this figure correctly. I think 88% of Americans still recognize that that slogan. So it was highly effective. And then you have campaigns by the Dairy Association like Milk uh, Does a Body Good or um, The Incredible Edible Egg and Pork. It's the other, other white meat. So these are uh, highly effective campaigns by the meat and dairy industries to get us to eat uh, more and more of their products. And I, I'd say it's been highly effective. And aren't they, a lot of these marketing programs subsidized by the government as well through those checkoff programs? Well, it's not an direct, uh, not a direct subsidy. You know, the checkoff programs are something that the um, producers would um, spend money on. So like the checkoff initially was voluntary and that's why it has the name checkoff. So a producer of beef would opt in to becoming a part of the beef checkoff program. But, you know, basically now days is not something that's optional. It's pretty much mandatory. But what that does is it creates a huge um, arsenal of funds to promote these products. So the checkoff programs, you know, employs this idea that, you know, a rising tide uh, floats all boats. So that uh, if we all pull our money and promote beef, then every beef producer would benefit from it. So that's what these checkoff programs, uh, how they originated. And it's been kind of contentious, you know, I talk in my book about the history of the checkoff program a little bit because, you know, farmers have tried to opt out of the checkoff program for years. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court uh, back in 2016, I think, determined that, uh, you know, this wasn't uh, – how did they determine it? It was something like it wasn't free speech, that the checkoff program didn't infringe on uh, the growers' free speech because it was government speech. And people were like, wait a minute, what? Why, why is this government speech? Uh, well, it turns out that the uh, USDA approves all the slogans by the checkoff programs. And so that's why the Supreme Court said this is you know, government speech. Um, it's interesting that I think there's like 22 checkoff programs and half of them are are plant-based. The other half are the meat and dairy industries, but the, the meat and dairy industries use checkoff programs, you know, in a much more effective way. Uh, we're not bombarded with, you know, uh, what mango ads on television, are we? <laughs> we're bombarded with, you know, the advertisements for animal-based foods. And there's the numbers and statistics are in my book, and I can't you know, repeat them right off the bat, uh, off the top of my head, but it it, it is pretty amazing. Um, but there are government subsidies that, you know, support the meat and dairy industry, and that's separate from the checkoff program. Um, you know, the farm bill comes out, I think every five years, it comes out this September, and there are a lot of people who are working hard to try to uh, change the way the farm bill subsidizes animal-based foods. For instance, in the year uh, 2020, I think it was, the meat, the government gave the beef industry $9 billion in direct and indirect payments. And that's just taxpayer money going to the beef industry so they can pro provide us with an affordable burger. Um, of course, you know, the, the, uh, we're supporting that with our taxes. We're funding that government handout, but the 
meat industry is pocketing all the profits from that. So, um, you know, I say in my book that, you know, we can make a difference because every time we go to the grocery, we're voting with our dollars. Uh, and so we're telling, you know, corporations, you know, what we want to see. Um, but it's not a fair fight. You know, it's, it, I, I used to think that uh, if, if, um, if I stopped buying these products, I'd stop supplying them. But it's not true because there's not enough numbers of, of plant-based eaters right now to impact the industry, especially when the industry is getting all this funding from the government to subsidize the, the product. So I can give you some statistics on this. Uh, so like for every dollar a lentil grower receives from our government, a, a cattle rancher receives $470. And for every dollar a mushroom grower receives, the pork industry receives $160. And for every farmer who's growing oats, for every dollar he or she gets, the dairy industry is receiving $80 from our government. So there's inequities baked into the farm bill and, and into the subsidies. And so it's it's creating a world, uh, Dr. Yami, like we've never seen before. You know, historically speaking, animal-based foods are luxury items. And they still would be today if they weren't subsidized by the government. You know, I talk about in my book, there's one study um, that said, you know, if you looked at the true cost of a hamburger and if you factored in whether um, the rainforest was, um, if there was any kind of biodiversity loss due to, you know, raising cattle in the rainforest in Brazil or elsewhere, uh, that the true cost of a burger, when you factor in the loss of carbon and everything, would be $200. Now, who could afford to pay $200 for a burger? Only the extreme wealthy. And that's because, you know, we're not paying the cost up front for animal-based foods. Uh, the government subsidizes them. And so I really liked what Business Insider said in the article. It says a hamburger isn't something bought and paid for, but a symbol of a debt that one day must be repaid. And so everyone who's eating in the matrix, we're adding to that debt. And so what I see in my book is if you're a parent or a grandparent or want to be someday, you know, you owe it to your children and grandchildren to escape the matrix and eat plants because with every burger that you're eating, you're increasing that debt. And it will be a debt so vast that no no one could ever possibly repay it. So I think that that's um, something most people don't realize. They just think that, uh, you know, there's, it seems benign eating this burger. And people will say, what's my choice? You know, I know it's not good. It's not healthy for me, but it's only affecting me and my health. Well, it's not. It's affecting the entire planet and it's increasing health care costs for everybody. You know, we're spending a tremendous amount of money on health care, uh, trying to combat illnesses that a plant-based lifestyle can uh, help us avoid and reverse. Like uh, our number one killer is heart disease and a plant-based lifestyle has been proven to reverse a heart disease, even in late stages. And they have documented um, results in as little as three weeks of the of a patient's arteries and uh, in, in veins opening up and relaxing uh, just because, you know, we're stopped have stopped eating the saturated fats that clog our arteries. So it's it's really uh, it's really powerful. And so I I just want people to to connect the dots, and that's what I try to do in my book is to try to provide the science. And you know I'm not try, I'm not into blaming or shaming people about uh, doing this. Uh, I want people to to follow the science and make informed decisions. And then I think people, once they have the information, they will make decisions that are better for them and better for the planet. That's my hope yeah. anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so complex and it's so sobering to think about some of these things, but I feel, you know, you gave some of the statistics with, you know, lentils and oats and, you know, these different types of farmers. I see so many more products coming onto the market. I, I know that they're becoming more popular. I know that there's going to be a greater demand for some more of these plant-based products, but you're right. Still, the great, the vast majority of people are eating a meat-centric diet. So even though for some of us, it feels mm -hmm. like an explosion, it's still a very small percentage of people. So that leads me to my next question. For those of us at the very beginning of the journey, how can we escape the matrix? And then to follow up on that, for those of us that have been on this path for a while, the veterans, the plant-based veterans, what can we do to wake 
other people up to the reality of the matrix? Those are really great questions. I, I think what people can do to make this transition uh, easier is, you know, we're taught in this country to build our menu around a piece of animal protein on our plates. And so I think the easiest way to make the transition is to basically buy a plant-based meat uh, alternative and prepare your meal the way you normally would and just swap out the, the hamburger with a product by, you know, Impossible Foods or Beyond Meat or something like that. Or if you make a chicken dish, you know, swap swap out the chicken with a plant-based chicken and that'll help you make the transition easier. You don't have to learn new recipes or, or anything. Um, but I think with the, the ultimate goal would be to move away from the processed um, plant-based foods as well and to moving towards uh, whole foods. And there's so many resources now, Dr. Yami, as you're aware, on the uh, internet, there's uh, incredible uh, a number of plant-based cookbooks available. There's tons of recipes available online. And, you know, I think that it's never been easier to uh, access, you know, recipes and ideas on how to do this. And so, uh, and I also think that it's important to have a community. You know, if your uh, family and friends aren't wanting to do this with you, then I think it's really important that you find uh, an online community that can help support you and and so that you feel like you're part of a community and you're part of this uh, growing effort to reduce needless suffering in the world. And it's it's a very wonderful feeling when you divest, divest yourself from the meat and dairy industries. It's so liberating and so freeing and it feels so good um, that you want to tell everybody. And like you were saying, you know, how do we go about um, getting this information out to other people? And, you know, I decided for myself that writing a book was the best way for me to do it because I don't really feel that there's time to uh, change uh, the direction that our planet's heading by having one conversation at a time. Uh, I love conversing with you, and I hope, you know, thousands and thousands of people will tune in to this podcast and, and get this information. Um, but it's it needs to happen more quickly uh, we're at a critical time, and um, you know we haven't really talked about the climate change impact of the um, meat and dairy industries, but that is uh, it's it's enormous, and so I think we need to find ways to get the message out to as wide of an audience as possible. So it's really great to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with people, but I think we need to do it more. We need to ramp up more quickly than that. So that's one of the reasons why I wrote my book. Yeah, I agree. And thank you so much for writing your book. I think the more content we can have out there on various platforms, whether it's written content, video, audio, the better. And I think, you know, at those first stages when somebody discovers veganism or a plant-based lifestyle, we can be mm -hmm. a little bit too forceful <laughs> and, you know, really kind of annoy a lot of people. But once you find your balance and, you know, I tell people, first of all, live by example, be joyful, be happy, thrive and find your routine, find your rhythm, then people are going to start to ask you what you're doing. But, you know, as you become more comfortable and feel more balanced in this new way of living, just start sharing the positive aspects of it. I think that a lot of people respond to hearing the positive. You know, we still have to expose all the realities. And I think that there's a place for that. But the more of us that can be like, hey, it's okay. Why don't you try, like you were saying, this substitute? You know, when you go to Burger King, why don't you try their their plant-based burger? When you go to the grocery store, pick up this product and see what it's like. And little by little, we can start easing people into this lifestyle. At the very least, they can start reducing their consumption of animal products because I don't think we're all going to be able to go 100% plant-based right away. But if people start to reduce that intake, that's going to make a big impact as well over time. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think our government needs to help uh, farmers retool to a plant-based future. And I think they can do that through the subsidies. I think they need to uh, give plant-based uh, foods, you know, more support. And I think that <clears throat> the media also plays an important role in this and that, you know, the media talks about 
climate change a lot, and we know that burning fossil fuels releases carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And, and so me, mainstream media is often saying, you know, we need to move to green energy solutions like solar and wind, and we need to all start driving electric cars. Hey, are you kind of curious about microgreens and including microgreens in your diet, but you're not sure where to start and you're not sure how to do it? I love my Hamama microgreen grower. It's so easy. It's so convenient. So this is how it works. Basically, they send you the kit and it has this little seed quilt, okay? And then you soak the seed quilt in the water. And in a few days, you see your tiny little baby sprouts growing. And a few days after that, you can start eating them. And it's so fun. And you can tell them that you're eating them. And they're really happy that you're eating them. And your body's really happy that you're eating them. But here's the best part because I've told y'all before, I'm lazy. So I don't want to have to use any mental energy that I don't need to. And they send you seed quilts every month. So you don't run out. You can change what seed quilts you want to try. So here's some examples of some of the seed quilts they have. Hearty broccoli, refreshing cabbage, energizing kale, spicy daikon radish, super salad mix. You can even get wheatgrass. You can get culinary cilantro or even hot wasabi mustard. So there's lots to choose from. They have different flavors. They're so cute and they're health promoting. So you can get a good dose of antioxidants and it's really beautiful. I also use them for garnish when I'm making soups and salads and different bowls. You can impress your guests. But like I said, it's going to be low energy cost on your part. And it's actually not that expensive either. The other thing that I use from Hamama is a green onion growing kit, which is really cool because it can decrease your food waste. So you buy the green onions and then the little part that has the root, the white part at the bottom, you stick it in these little holes and then you just put the water in there and it grows. And then you can keep eating the same green onions. You just go with your little scissors and you chop it off and you put it into your food. So if you want to give it a try, you've been curious about microgreens and different ways that you can grow your own food, check out Hamama. You can find it in my show notes for a link to get 15% off, or you can go to dryami.com forward slash shop so that you can find the link and get 15% off your first order. Happy growing. Do you love Veggie Doctor Radio, but you're sick of listening to ads? Join the Plantscription. The Plantscription is a monthly membership where you have access to ad-free episodes of Veggie Doctor Radio every week. But that's not all. You also have access to a monthly live Q&A with me and a monthly live book club. You also get access to writings and musings and free giveaways. It is such a great deal. Right now, it's only $5 a month to join the Planscription. If you want to join, go to planscription.substack.com or go to the show notes to follow the link. Join the Planscription today and join me in this plantastic community. So far, I've never heard mainstream media saying we need to all become plant-based. <laughs> and why is that? You know, uh, it's because so many of the advertisers on, you know, TV and and the Internet even are from the matrix. And so um, we know that uh, journalist journalism is suffering. Uh, and so they need these accounts. They need the, the people to uh, advertise in their magazines and online and stuff. So. But the mainstream media really needs to can help the American public connect the dots uh, on why it's so important uh, to do this. Because, um, you know, Oxford University did a study. They analyzed 38,000 farms in 119 countries, and they determined that an American could lower their carbon footprint by 73 percent simply by becoming plant based. Now, why isn't that talked about in the media? You know, there's no other thing that we could do that would lower our carbon footprint that much. I mean, we could put solar panels on our house or we could drive an electric car, uh, but it would not compare to the impact of becoming plant-based has on the environment. And and that's mainly because uh, animal agriculture, you know, releases so many uh, greenhouse gas emissions 
Um, I have charts in my book that show the environmental impacts of growing a, a variety of foods. So uh, there's a chart that shows, you know, uh, the environmental impacts of growing animal-based versus plant-based foods. And there's another chart that shows the environmental impacts of growing uh, protein-rich plant-based foods versus animal-based foods. And these charts are amazing because they're potent, you know, visual representations of the science in my book. And you can clearly see that uh, plant-based foods are far superior to animal-based foods in every environmental category from land use to water use to uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions and eutrophication. So these are... Uh, this is what the mainstream media fails to report to most people. And so that's, we need to connect these dots as well. So people are you know, more than willing to buy an electric vehicle. And, and also because that doesn't really require any kind of lifestyle change, right? I mean, you just, you're just swapping out one car for another type of car. Whereas what uh, a plant-based lifestyle is basically asking people to do is behavior modification, you know, and that's something that's really hard for humans to do. Uh, we like our routines and, and, you know, we do things mindlessly. You know, we continue to eat animal-based foods without thinking of them, uh, thinking of what we're doing. Uh, I, I really like something that I came across recently, and it said that, you know, every default thought in our head is not our own. The default thoughts that are in our heads were put there by our family and by society. And until we unpack those, until we examine those, we're just running on default. You know, we're not making a conscious choice. We're just doing what everyone else is doing. And it doesn't matter if we're destroying the planet and our health. We don't see it, you know, because it's all we've ever known because we are brainwashed into the matrix. Conditioning. Conditioning mm -hmm. for a long time, decades and decades of conditioning. Well, that's right. all very critical, very interesting information that we need to know. Stuart, what do you wish more people knew? Well, I wish uh, everyone understood uh, the science in my book, really, that connects all these dots between, you know, the, the, the state our world is in and how we got here and a way out. You know, I want people to realize that there is hope and that we can make a difference. I think there's a term out there is called um, weaponized hopelessness. And I think a lot of people experience that. They think these problems are so huge. Uh, what can I do as an individual that can make a difference? And so we just basically give up. And, you know, the industries that benefit from that are counting on that. They're weaponizing our hopelessness so that we'll just continue to not change. We'll continue to, to buy their products. And so my hope is that we can uh, all become more hopeful and realize that, you know, we do have uh, a choice. We can make a difference and not only for ourselves, but for the planet and for our, our children and, and future generations. So. Uh, that's so powerful. Empowered and hopeful. Because if we have that, then we are more willing to take action. And I think that's what we need to do right now is to mm -hmm. just each start taking action. Well, Stuart, this has been great. I want to ask a little bit about your personal life. Do you have a morning routine? If so, can you please share it with us? Yeah. So I currently continue my fasting through, say, like one o'clock or so. Uh, so I, I don't eat breakfast, but I do... Um, drink green tea, which I think is really excellent for our health. And I really uh, latched on to green tea a number of years ago because there were some studies that came out that said that uh, consuming green tea offered men uh, some protection from prostate cancer. And that really, you know, I was like, well, I don't want to have prostate cancer. I had several friends who went through prostate cancer and they're still alive today, but just the treatment and the surgeries, the recovery, I was like, I do not want to experience that ever in any of my lifetimes. So I started adopting green tea because I wanted to get that protection from, from the, the polyphenols and the, the phytonutrients that are in green tea. So that's what I do in the morning. And then usually around um, 12 to one o'clock, I'll fix my breakfast and it'll be um, oats usually with uh, some uh, walnuts, hemp hearts, um, wild blueberries, because they have like twice the antioxidants of conventional blueberries. 
and uh, a little bit of maple syrup and maybe a banana thrown in or something like that. That sounds like a deal. That's like my favorite oat recipe that you just gave. I also yeah. love the wild blueberries. There's, I think that they taste sweeter. Yeah. I, I don't know. They taste so good. I love wild blueberries. That's <sighs> great. When now I'm curious about your fasting window now because I'm doing a whole fasting series. You, so when do you typically close your eating window then after that? I used to be really strict. Uh, I used to stop at eight o'clock at night and, and extend till like noon the next day. I don't really, I've lost some willpower. I have to admit through the pandemic, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm doing more snacking at the end of the night, but usually I'm, I'm finished eating by say 10 o'clock at night. And so I extend my fast is usually for like 14 hours or so. Yeah. But you must go to bed late then. I do go to bed late. Yeah. Yeah. I'm usually already like in my deep sleep by 10 o'clock. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. Okay, Stuart, where can listeners connect with you? Uh, what products and services do you offer? Tell us where we can find your book. Well, they can find my book on Amazon and uh, can also be found on uh, Instagram and Facebook and my website, stewartwaldner.com. And you know, my product and service is basically my book. So uh, I do have some resources on my website, but nothing uh, compares to your website. You have tons of resources and I'm so blown away by all that you offer on your website. So maybe one day my website can be as robust as yours. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I have help and we also, for some reason, just cannot stop thinking of ideas. We're idea machines over here. So, well, that's great, Stuart. And I really hope that people do get your book and read it because it's very well written. It's well, very you. well researched. You have all of your um, references at the end, which is very important to a lot of people. So just people knowing that they're looking for the original references, right. they're there. And you cover all of the different topics that are important whenever we're thinking about reducing our consumption of animal products. Well, this is my last question. Leave us with your number one tip for people that are ready to escape the matrix. Where should they start? I think starting with uh, going to the grocery store and just exploring the aisles, looking for uh, foods that say plant-based because they're there. And, you know, you may have not noticed them because, you know, we all run into the grocery, pick up the things that we're used to getting and, and leaving. But if you spend a little time in your grocery, you will find that there's so many more plant-based food items on the shelves than there ever has been before. And so, you know, back in the day, um, there would be a health food section in the store and all the, you know, healthy foods, plant-based foods would be in that section. Well, I don't know about where you live, uh, Dr. Yami, but now where I live, it's scattered out throughout the whole store. And um, so, it can easily be overlooked, but I just encourage people to look at the aisles more carefully. And when you're buying milk, just look over to the right. You'll find like 10 different types of plant-based milks and, you know, give one a try. Uh, see how it is. The same with, uh, you know, uh, there's plant-based chicken, there's plant-based meat, um, plant-based burgers. And uh, so I think that's a really great way to start is just kind of opening our eyes and looking to see what's out there and what's available and just start giving them a try. Yeah, that's great advice. And you're right. And honestly, I find it a little annoying because <laughs> I liked all my stuff in the same place. And the other day I went, I hardly ever go in person to the grocery store anymore. I usually order my stuff because yeah. it's very efficient. But um, I went the other day looking for a specific thing and I asked the the worker there where can i find that i think it was like plant-based cream cheese she's like oh we just put all of that next to the the cheese and i'm like Ugh, i don't want my plant-based cheese <laughs> touching the real cheese but yeah it's good it's good because now the plant-based yogurts are right next to the the milk yogurts and you know it's um it's become more mainstream and mm -hmm. i know that impossible and beyond started doing that at the beginning too they were putting their meat right in the meat section, which for the rest of, you know, for the vegans were like, Ugh, a little uncomfortable with that. But it's good because then all of the people that aren't vegan see that right. and they start kind of putting that into their consciousness. Oh, I'm going to try it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you watch the clip 
of that one British sausage expert that they tricked on live TV that they gave him plant-based sausage and he said no. it was like the best sausage ever. <laughs> and then afterwards, when they told him it was plant-based, he was like, actually, it tasted like cardboard. <laughs> it was so oh, sure. funny. He couldn't tell the difference. He couldn't no. tell the difference. And I think for a lot of people, they would be surprised because that happens to me all the time. Now, if I go to a restaurant and I have a plant-based, you know, like a Beyond Burger or something, I'll take a bite and be like, did they give me a real burger? Okay. <laughs> and I have to check what, are you sure you got me the beyond? They're like, yes, yes. I'm like, okay. No. Because it tastes like the real thing. So I think mm -hmm. that that's really great advice for people starting out. Stuart, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for putting time and effort, blood, sweat, and tears into writing your book. I know how difficult it is to write a book. I really appreciate your passion, your enthusiasm, and I'm so grateful for you. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. Thank you, Dr. Yami. I'm so grateful for you and the work that you're doing. And it's been a pleasure to meet you and be on your show. So thanks for this opportunity. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day.